Thank you, Nathan. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Tonight we'll be looking in verse 16 and 17. Give you a chance to turn there. didn't plan to work through Colossians 3 so slowly, but that's how it's gone. So tonight we'll uh, look at 16 and 17, but let's start reading in verse 15 together. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray together. O God, our Father, we pray that tonight that your word would dwell richly among us. That we would encounter you through your word and by your spirit. That you would correct us where our thoughts of you are wrong or too low. That you would direct and change our behavior where we act wrongly. That, Father, that you would open our mouths to speak words that are true and helpful to one another. We pray, Father, that in every part of our lives that you would be glorified and that we would leave here tonight with a new resolve and even a new motivation to do just that, that you would be exalted in all things. We thank you for Christ who has suffered and died on our behalf that we might live anew and let us enjoy that new life even tonight. Help us, we pray, in your name. Amen. In recent months in our home, we have been working with our two daughters, uh, helping them with the skill, right, helping them practice the skill of carrying glasses, (laughs) plastic cups, of liquid, right? If you're a, a young parent, you are familiar with this uh, month-long process. It seems, you know, we've we've recently transitioned Addie, our our second daughter, uh, from the sippy cups with the lids that sometimes I think leak more than the cups without the lids. But that's another story, right? To transition her to the cups without lids, right? And uh, and we've figured out the best way to do this is to give her a cup about this big with about this much drink, which sometimes still manages to be spilled, right? She needs plenty of room for the liquid to to splash around. And of course, Karis, our six-year-old, apparently from time to time, uh, for reasons that I don't understand, she too seems to need a reminder of how to walk with cups. I would not have included her, except last night she spilled liquid in all sorts of creative ways, or whether it was at dinner or brushing her teeth. I walked into the bathroom this past weekend, and my daughters were brushing their teeth, and they have these cups that they use to uh, I guess rinse their mouth and they were seeing how full that they could fill them and so of course there was water on the mirror there's water on the wall there's water all over the counter there's water on the cabinets there's water on the floor and there's water on their brother 
I did not understand, right? It was all, it was all soaking wet. But you see, there's a, there's a common principle in play here. When your cup is full, it will inevitably overflow with whatever is inside of it. It makes me think of a quip that was offered by an old British preacher, Reverend White, who observed the surest sign that you're carrying a full bucket is wet feet. Our text this evening describes what Christian worship looks like when congregations and when believers that make up congregations have lives that are full to the brim of God's word. When they have lives that are full to the top of Christ and the word of Christ. Now Paul's not talking about Bible smart people or theology experts. He's not talking about people who are full of knowledge about the Bible or, uh, or something like that. But instead, he's speaking of people and of churches who regularly feast upon and richly enjoy the word of Christ. And wherever there are churches and Christians that are doing this, you will find true teaching, you will find spirit-filled singing, and you will find sincere thanksgiving. Because when we're carrying a full bucket, it is going to spill out in worship, and our feet are going to get wet. One of the things that's so exciting about this text tonight is that it gives us a picture of how our brothers and sisters from even the first century worshipped. I think that that's one of the things we can, we can see here. And we learn that even the earliest of churches were Christocentric. They were centered upon Christ and upon the word of Christ. And so we have much to learn from this text. So our main idea this evening is that God is calling us to submit to Christ by allowing his word to be the central authoritative voice in the church and in our relationships and in our everyday lives. Submit to Christ by allowing his word to be central in our lives. Now before we begin, I, I feel like I need to give a quick disclaimer. I've always thought that this was a pretty straightforward text. I think I might have preached it before some other time, and maybe it's the Ephesians version of this. Uh, but I'd always thought it was a pretty straightforward text, and then I started studying it a little bit more closely, right? And and it became a little bit uh, a little bit more difficult for me, right? But I think that it's a it's pretty clear that the central idea of this text, of this verse, this sentence here in verse sixteen, revolves around the word of Christ dwelling. That's the main, that's the center of this, of this sentence. But it's unclear, at least to me, exactly how all of these other elements of worship relate, right? See if you can track with me on what I'm saying, right? It would be really nice if it was simple, if, if the text said something like, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How? Well, by teaching and by admonishing and by singing and by thanksgiving and, you know, that sort of thing. Even the approach to the text that I'm taking, right? That, that what happens when the word of Christ dwells? Well, we are people who are teaching and admonishing and singing, etc. Some even argue that, that this is a passage that Paul is suggesting that Christians should teach one another by singing, and admonish one another by singing and that that is the main takeaway. You need to go home and you need to sing a song to your husband. You need to clean up the laundry better or something like that. I don't, I don't know. That's probably not what he meant. Um, like a singing telegram. 
Is that only an elf or something? Okay. The, the grammar in this verse is somewhat ambiguous, and so we're not entirely sure how these elements relate to worship. But nevertheless, we can still learn a great deal about worship. And we can at least say that worship may be more than some of these things, but it is certainly not less than these things. And so let's just work through this text or phrase it a time. Let's look at this first central phrase. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now it can be tempting to just see this phrase, word of Christ, and immediately jump to the conclusion that this means word of God, right? That it's synonymous with the Bible. And that's not a false or bad idea, but that's probably not quite how the Colossians uh, would have taken this, right? They didn't have the New Testament in written form, and um, they probably wouldn't have read it like this, right? So the word of Christ is a pretty unique phrase in the New Testament. And we can understand it to mean along the ideas of the message of Christ or the message about Christ, the message of Jesus, who is the Messiah. It's referring to all the teaching, all the true teaching about Christ and his significance as Savior and as Lord. It would certainly include the teachings of Jesus, right, as they were passed down to the churches and eventually recorded into the New Testament. But it's a, it's a phrase that functions, in a sense, to boil down the word of Christ to the person of Christ. We've said this about Colossians, that the big, we're trying to figure out, it's about who Jesus is and what that means for the world. And he is supreme and above all things. He's speaking of the message about Christ and all that entails. That Jesus is the Messiah. He is sent from God. He is very, he is God himself and he was sent from God for the redemption of sinners. And this word brings with him the kingdom of God. The message of the kingdom where everything is centered around the king, Jesus, who is the Lord. We see Paul in Colossians giving us perhaps some clues of how he's thinking of this. He, he is saying the word of Christ. He doesn't say it exactly like this, but he refers to the word as being the gospel in Colossians. You'll, you'll notice, uh, you'll notice, let's see if I'm, I might be getting ahead of myself. Um, we could say that it's, it's a message, that this message is certainly included in the scriptures, all about what Christ is. But I think we need to make a brief distinction, uh, because the text is saying that this is a word that is to dwell. It's to dwell in us. It, it gives us a picture of, of settling down. It's a word that settles down. If, if you were to picture someone welcoming someone into your home. I'm sure you've had this experience of having a guest, a uh, family member or a friend or, or someone come over to the house. And, and so you picture welcoming them, welcoming them into your home, perhaps, um, perhaps as a guest for the weekend, right? A passing through guest. Or perhaps you could even have someone come in as, as an honored guest, right? An honored guest, Someone uh, who is there and they are special and they're important and they're given special attention. But that is different than having them be the master of the house, right? They're not dwelling, they're not taking up residence. They are coming as a guest and a visitor. But Paul is saying that God's word is to dwell with us as the master of the house, 
Have you ever had a guest who didn't understand this distinction? I was trying to think of, I had lots of personal examples, but I was so afraid that one of them might listen to the sermon or something and be like, was that me? I still might give one. But, but you, you know, you invited someone over to the house and they don't quite understand their role in the, in the guest-host relationship, um, right? You know, you're happy to share your food with them. You're happy to share your bed and your warm water and all, and all those things. Um, but that's all with the knowledge that they'll leave, right? <laughs> Right? That they're, that they're, that they're going to leave soon. <laughs> Haley and I have some friends, good, he's a childhood friend of mine, a missionary, missionaries, and, and they've, got, they've got young boys, and they came to our house, and they, they came for an indefinite period of time. And we're like, okay. Uh, they're like, yeah, we're flexible, you know, we'll just kind of leave when, you know, when we need to leave. And we're like, What? <laughs> And uh, so we, man, we, we, we've had them before and we knew they were hungry. So we went to Sam's and we got, we got groceries. I'm telling you, we had the house full of food and, and dear friends that they are, <laughs> we cooked for them and they would kind of look at what we cooked and they threw it away and they would like get other food. Like the kids would like heap up all this food on their plate and they would throw it away and then they would go to the fridge and get like the leftovers from like the night before and we were just like oh man uh, we're so glad you're here when are you leaving Um, right because there's a difference in being a guest and being the master of the house I suppose that that's something that I could do in my house or that my wife could do in the house the text call is calling us to let this message the message of Christ set up as the master of the house, to dwell, to take over the residence, for, for you and I to center our lives upon and around that message, that we are to organize our lives, every aspect of our lives around these central truths, that, that, that for example, that Jesus is Lord. What part of your life does not need to be completely rearranged by that truth? Jesus is Lord. It's relevant to every piece. What about the fact that Jesus is Redeemer? That he has died to set you free from sin. And since you're set free from sin, you don't need to be in bondage. What part of your life is not affected by that truth? We are to humble ourselves and submit ourselves under this word. That's why the text says, let it dwell. Let it dwell richly in you. But here we have a, another modifier, this word richly. We're not only, it's not only that we're to orient and submit our whole lives to the person of Christ and, and his gospel message, but we are to do it richly. Isn't that an interesting word? There's a richness to the word of God that defies our imagination, is there not? Paul has already been using the, this idea of richness earlier in, in Colossians. If you look over at chapter 1, verse 27, probably just flip a page, he's speaking of how God chose to make known among the Gentiles the riches of the glory of this mystery. Look what he says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In chapter 2, verse 2, and in verse 3 as well, he's speaking about reaching all the riches of 
full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, the riches of Christ. And so now it's no surprise for us to see how Paul is exhorting the churches. He's exhorting the church at Colossians, and he would exhort us today to enjoy an exciting and an adventurous relationship with this word as we explore the riches of the 10,000 delightful applications of the scripture. I mean, just think of it. Take, take again those two summary statements of what I've said of the word of Christ that I made just a few moments ago, that Jesus is Lord. How many implications are there for your life? How many implications can you work out? How many applications are there that Jesus is Lord? You can literally go through and take any topic that there is, put it on one side of the paper, write Jesus is Lord on the other side of the paper, and you will find application and implications. And we can spend our lives searching this out. Or the fact that Jesus is Savior. What part of our lives do we not need to apply that to? How long do we need to explore the depths of his mercy and his grace as shown to us on the cross? The Bible demonstrates this so well because it both contains the word of Christ and it is the word of Christ. The Bible is that. It, and, and has not God revealed to us in the scriptures an inexhaustible amount of spiritual resources that are for our good? I mean, how much is there to read and to learn and to contemplate? How much has God given to to stimulate our intellects, to stir up our imaginations? I mean, the Bible says God is like a rock. How long do you need to meditate on that and to understand it? How much is there? Have you, how, I was thinking about this today. How long have you meditated on the fact that Christ is a lion and a lamb? I mean, I mean we, we, give it, we give it a pass, but spend 30 minutes thinking on that. Is that enough? Is 30 minutes enough to think on that? That Christ is both a lion and a lamb? How much do we need to sort that out? Over the last two weeks in my personal study, I've been trying to understand how God's love and God's wrath relate to one another. How they are not different parts of his character, but they are, they are God. That God is love and God is wrath. And that they do not contradict or disqualify one another. As we broaden this, this idea out to thinking about the Bible, right? As we broaden out from the story of, or from the word of Christ to the whole story of redemption that the Bible contains, how much more do we have to occupy our hearts with? Just a few weeks ago, in uh, my Quip group, <coughs> I lead a, a CBR group on Sunday nights where we're talking about how to use the community Bible reading journal. We were talking about this idea. <coughs> we were thinking about, in Second Timothy, how the scriptures say that <coughs> all of God's word is, is breathed out by God and is given to us for, for usefulness <coughs> and for benefit. And so we were talking about this, and, and we used the example of First Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1, which reads, The sons of Issachar, Tola, Pua, Jashub, and Shimron, four. 
That's exactly what First, First Chronicles 7, 1 reads, right? Now, all of these words are inspired by God. And Paul, had, Paul told Timothy that all of the scriptures are useful for godliness. So, what do we gain from the four sons of Issachar, right? And, and, and we talked about that. I mean, are even the four sons of Issachar helpful for us? I mentioned, did you know that Issachar is mentioned 41 times in the Bible? 41 times he appears in the story of redemption. Yet, do you know his significance? Do you know why his four sons are listed for us? Do you know how his life and the record of his life and the record of his family somehow directs and testifies and points and leads up to Christ? Friends, the word of Christ and the word of God is an infinitely exhaustible resource for our life as a church and for our lives as followers of Christ. And we are to let it dwell richly in us. God's word is rich. But I suppose there's also a sense of where this richness speaks not only of the quality of the word, but how we receive it and how we receive it. It is possible to interact, in this, interact with this word not richly, but poorly. We could, we could interact with it in a weak and feeble manner. Can you not receive the word weakly or richly? Can you not accept a new master into the house and yet remain distant and aloft? I mean, leaving them in the wing to run the house as they please. Could you not do that? You certainly can. And in fact, I'm afraid this is how perhaps many of us would describe our Christian lives. We have accepted that Jesus is Lord. But we, in some areas, keep a little bit of a distance. A measured distance from him in some areas. We value the word of God but sometimes only in, in form. We, we at times interact with his word, but we're not transformed by his word. Or what about when we don't delight in it? Shoot, I know that many of the people I talk to here at Trinity, many of us are sincerely struggling to read the Bible every day. There's no way that there can be delight there if you're struggling to read the Bible. And God calls for us to let it dwell richly in us. I recently read of a man by the name of uh, Joe Lentini who sat down one night in Atlantic City at a nice steakhouse. And he had a couple of friends with him. And, and the man was not a big drinker, but he asked his waitress for a wine recommendation. She calmly recommended the following. Screaming Eagle Oakville Vintage 2011. She said the bottle was $37.50. So the man ordered it, but when he got his bill, he was horrified to learn that the $37.50 did not refer to $37.50, but $3,750. Now, I have absolutely no idea what the difference in a $3,000 bottle of wine and a $30 bottle of wine is. I think somebody somewhere is laughing all the way to the bank. But, but apparently this diner didn't either. 
because he he didn't know that he was drinking a three thousand dollar bottle of wine. Uh, the newspaper that wrote this article, they they interviewed him, and uh, they asked him like, "Well, was it good?" And this is what he said: "It was okay. It was good, I guess. Well, it wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible. It was fine." <laughs> I mean, he didn't know any better. This is how many of us let the word dwell in us. We may let it dwell, but not richly. We don't know how to enjoy it. We may read our Bibles. We may listen to a few sermons, but we're not that impressed. We haven't yet acquired the right taste buds to appreciate that we don't have a $30 book and we perhaps we don't even have a $3,000 book, but we have the very words of God and at any time can commune with God. Friends, don't let the word of Christ just be a guest or even a distant master in your home. Let him rule and enjoy his company. Enjoy his company. The next clause in the phrase, in, in this verse, it goes on to, to say, it speaks of teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And I think the first thing to notice about this phrase is to notice who is involved. Who, who is to be involved in teaching and admonishing? Who is to be taught and who is to be admonished? But you'll notice that the verse says, one another. That we are to do this with one another. Which clues us in to the very important insight from this passage that this pattern of worship, that these activities of worship are not done by the pastor guys or the preacher guys or the apostle guys or the seminary people, but they are given to the very congregation. This is a mutual responsibility. Which at first might seem surprising because you see teaching and you think immediately of a gift, right? The spiritual gift of teaching, which Paul speaks of, of elsewhere. But here he is tasking all Christians, every member of the body, with the responsibility of teaching and admonishing. Now teaching, uh, we could, a simple definition would be presenting the truth of Christ, Presenting in a positive way truth, right? It does, certainly doesn't have to be in a public context like this. It doesn't have to be in a Sunday school setting, right? It's simply communicating the truth from one person to another. It could be in a Bible study. It could be in a text message or over a cup of coffee. It could be while tucking a child into bed. Now, we might be able to accept that. Okay, I can speak of Christ. I can speak of the truth of God. I can say that to other people. But the next word is stronger, admonishing. This has a little bit of a negative bent to it. Speaking of the negative warnings of the danger of straying away from the truth. Admonishing. If teaching refers to the positive presentation of truth, admonishing is a little bit more of the warnings and there's so much we could say about this, so much to think about. But let it be sufficient to say this, friends. God intends for each one of you to be involved in the lives of other members in this church. None of you Christians are exempt from this. God intends for us to be involved in the lives of others in this church. But more than that, it is far more specific than just involvement, right? 
God intends for each one of us to be helpers, to help one another know and apply God's Word. Do you see that? That's what's made up here in teaching and admonishing. God wants you to help me and to help each other know and apply God's Word to our lives. This can take 10,000 forms, can it not? It could be discussion about a passage of Scripture. It could be challenging someone to take one of the next steps in their walk with the Lord. It might be helping someone think about the temptation they're facing and how to be accountable. It might be a gentle rebuke to someone who is sinning. It might be helping someone get a, what I call getting a sin on their radar, encouraging them to think, hey, friend, have you, have you considered this pattern? This might be sinning. It might be helping someone establish a workable budget, applying, knowing Christ and applying his lordship to their life. The key is this, friends. God intends to use you to help the people around you grow in their walk with Christ. None of you are exempt. This is not a job for the pastors. This is not a job for the staff. This is not a job for the smart Christians. God intends to use you. And so I would encourage you to think, are there people in my life with whom I'm doing this? Are there relationships, particularly in the context of your church, where you are interacting with other people? Not only teaching and admonishing, but being taught and being admonished. This is how God's word would dwell richly. God wants you to help other people enjoy the word of God dwelling richly. But you'll notice an important qualifier here. Another qualifier. Paul is descriptive, is he not? With all wisdom. Right? You see that in verse 16. We're still in 16. Admonishing, teaching, uh, uh, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. It's important to note that this sort of ministry is not the gunslinger's ministry, right? This is not dropping every new theological idea that you've heard on someone, some poor, unsuspecting soul. This is not telling someone everything that they're doing wrong, right? This is doing it with wisdom, which means you're taking care to listen, to understand the problem. Have you ever had someone try to help you and they don't even understand the problem? That can be really painful and really awkward. Don't rush in to teach or rebuke or correct. We would be wise to remember that the Christian qualities of verses 12 through 15 that Paul has just listed for us are all in view here. That we are to take all of those into these relationships and these conversations and these text messages. That is, we are to move towards one another, not only getting to know each other, which is necessary first, right? That's why it's great to have people to your house. Great to have fun together. Go on trips and women's retreats and spend time and watch football games together so that when the time comes, you can cry together and think about temptation together and read the scriptures together. But in these relationships, we go armed into these relationships with attitudes of compassion and humility and meekness. And of course, heaps and heaps and heaps of forgiveness. We got to have lots of forgiveness. We have, in fact, as we have seen, an infinite supply of forgiveness as we forgive in the same way 
that we have been forgiven. And trust me, if you, you probably know this, but if you take ministry seriously, if you try to engage with other people for their good and for the glory of Christ, they will sin against you. They'll hurt you sometimes. That's what we do. Sinners sin. And so we need lots and lots of forgiveness. Sinful people are prideful people. That's what sin is, is pride. I know better than God. And so when when we move towards each other, (laughs) sometimes we don't want to be taught because that means we don't know something. And we don't want to be admonished because that means you're in my business. And so we need to move towards people ready to forgive. Gracious as God has moved towards us. Which, think about it, if the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, this is going to be a pretty natural thing. People who have been forgiven much have much forgiveness to give. There's so much more we could say about that, but I'll, I'll move on. Um, no, let me say one more thing. Uh, you'll notice that this text doesn't refer to any church leaders. There are no church leaders mentioned, which... <laughs> this is a major, this is a parallel passage to much of what's going on in Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5. And Ephesians 4 is this wonderful text about how God has given gifts to the church and he's given pastors and teachers and apostles, all this stuff. He's given those gifts to the church to equip the saints so that the saints can do the work of the ministry, right? So who does the work of the ministry according to Ephesians 4? The church, not the leaders, right? The leaders are equipping and saints are ministering. And it's a similar idea here. That there's no church leaders addressed, which means perhaps at least in part uh, that God is calling for you, congregation, to take responsibility for how we worship. For, to take responsibility for how ministry is done. Not sitting around waiting for us to roll out the next program, right? But to minister and to and to worship, to make the word of Christ central. That's really the picture here. I don't know how much it's coming out, but that Christ would be, his word would be the center, not only of your personal life, but of the church. And leaders are a big part of that, but they are not the only part of that. As a congregation, we choose how we want to place the word of Christ in our church. The next phrase in this series is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs or spirit-filled songs or of the spirit songs. I don't, this trans, ESV doesn't do the greatest translating this passage. Uh, with, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, as I said before, the way that this reads could lead us to thinking of singing the singing of hymns and songs as the vehicle by which we do the teaching and the, the admonishing. Oh, just picture the mighty men delivering their Sunday school lesson with Tony singing that. Tony, would you do that on Sunday? I would love that. That would be. I would come to your class. Not everybody is Michael Bates who can sing everything, right? But I think that seems a little bit strained to me. I mean, music certainly can function in this way, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But I think it would be wise for us to recognize that, that in many cultures, music is a primary way, especially historically, that information is taught. 
or passed down. How would you know of the beauties of Rocky Top if someone did not sing you that song, right? Whatever. My son, my, my children are learning their doctrine. The bulk of their doctrine that they're learning right now is through songs. We're teaching them catechism questions and we're doing that through songs. And we just, I mean, we can just cue it up. We start humming a tune and sing off the Ten Commandments or whatever the, you know, wherever the song is. It's, songs are an incredible, music is a vehicle to carry truth. And of course, we have to recognize that, that all songs that we sing teach doctrine. Suppose all music with words has a message, or all music with words has a message, but the songs that we sing, spiritual songs and hymns and psalms, they teach doctrine. There's a season of my life, where, probably when I was in seminary, where my poor wife would get in the car, we'd turn on Christian radio, and I would dissect the songs. Right? I thought that I was a theology guy, and I would just rip every song apart. I didn't like anything. I'm like, what do you mean God's love is like a hurricane? Like, which part of a hurricane or a sloppy wet kid? And I was not, not that helpful. But, but it's, it's helpful to remember that all songs communicate a message. The, the lyrics communicate Doctrine. They teach, for better or worse, what God is like and the nature of his love. They teach how we should suffer and why we should have hope. I got to thinking about this, and I, I think that there are times when songs even admonish us or rebuke us for our lack of faith. William Cooper, one of my favorite poets and hymn writers, he, you, you've, you've heard this before, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Is that not a rebuke to us in our suffering? Comfort, yes, but a reminder that we struggle to see our sufferings rightly, right? Songs rebuke and admonish and they teach. Think about how wonderful our corporate worship functions in this way. I mean, we literally, I love singing together. I love it because we literally get to stand and we sing truths together that me and the person beside me and the person behind me and the person on the other side can sing loud and say, yes, the love of God is richer far. We can all say it together. And that is important for my heart because I believe that, but I need to believe it more. And some mornings I don't believe it very much. Music works like that. We, we, we sing to each other, whether it's a special music or a choir piece or, or, whether, uh, or whether we're singing corporately, we're, we're singing to each other as we sing to the Lord. This Sunday, Maggie Ingram encouraged us all to join her in saying, Jesus is better than anything. She said, I believe this, and yet I'm also confessing that I don't believe this. That's, that's basically what she said. She told us, help me, and, she, and then she prayed in front of us, help me want the giver more than the gift. Help me want you, Jesus, more than anything. I need to sing that. I need that to be my prayer. And you need it too. I loved how this Sunday I got to hold my daughter in my arm. And sing as loud as I can. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and it reaches into the lowest hell. I 
love singing that. Think about what's happening. Think about what happens when we sing that together. There's a number of things happening. Number one, we're instructing each other, in that case, about the love of God. We're telling each other what his love is like. I'm telling me, and I'm telling you, and if you're singing and not on your phone, you're telling me, and guess what? You're telling my children. And we're all telling, and we're telling the lost people that are in our services, hey, the love of God is far greater than any tongue or pen can tell. Let me tell you about it. Isn't that great? We're calling each other, we're, t- we're teaching, and yet we're calling, we're, we're admonishing each other, believe, believe with me. This is true. I know this is true. I believe this is true. I need to believe more that it's true. So, soul, believe. Not just sing, right? It's not about singing. It's about believing. It's calling one another to faith. We're admonishing. We're admonishing each other. But we're also encouraging each other to celebrate. If this is true, you should be happy. Oh, it breaks my heart to see sullen faces when we're singing praise to the Lord. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense. We're encouraging each other to celebrate. You'll notice how this text, multiple times, before, backwards, verse 16, 17, 15, constantly talking about thanksgiving. That this is all taking place with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And doesn't that fit well with singing? I mean, isn't that like what's the bulk of what singing is, right? Singing is a, it's a celebration. It's a natural expression of gratitude. It's an overflow of joy and thanksgiving. This is why people who are excited about the gospel, who are excited about what God has done for them in Christ, this is why they sing. This is why people who love Tennessee football sing about Tennessee football, and this is why people who are excited about God sing about God. And the people who are not excited about God usually don't sing very excitedly about God. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that in your own life? That's why we sing. Because we can't not sing. If all this is true, we can't not sing. And you know what? This has really helped me. I've been in different churches, all different styles of music. And you know what I've learned? You don't have to love the style of music to sing. Did you know that? You don't have to love it. You don't have to love the song. It just has to be true. Right? It just has to be true. Because true worship flows out of our hearts. That's why the text says, with sincerity. It is, it is overflowing about what is already out of what is already there. If your bucket's full, your feet are going to get wet, right? If your bucket's full, it's going to spill over. If there's love and adoration for God in your heart, if there's awe and amazement at his love, then you're going to be happy to sing about how nobody can write it all down. And if all the skies were made of parchment, that wouldn't be enough to write down all the love of God. Oh, you've got to fill the oceans with ink. That's not enough to write down the love of God. Right? That gets you excited if you know the love of God as being big. Do you see? This is why the text, I think, emphasizes... That this thanksgiving must be from our hearts. That is, it must be sincere. We see all over the Bible, God hates insincere worship. He hates it. It's a stench. 
This also why, generally speaking, you can look around a worship service and usually tell who's excited about the Lord. Because in His presence, this fullness of joy and full joy cannot be constrained. It doesn't mean you have to raise your hand. Or you know, they, they, people show it differently, and that's fine. But if your bucket's full, it's going to spill over. And music is spillage 101, right? That's the first spot. Because what's in your heart will come out. A final word here for verse 17. My goodness. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This verse reminds us, I think the main thing I want you to see here, is that worship does not merely take place in worship services or in assemblies like this or in a building like this. Worship isn't just singing and it's not just preaching and it's not just ministry. We worship in our lives. The Bible does not allow for discontinuity between worship on Sunday and worship on Monday. Makes no sense. Makes no sense. Which is really how this gets down to the heart of the passage, right? It's really what it means for the word of Christ to dwell in you. Verse 17, the text says, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. What do you think that means? It means that you willingly, in every aspect of your life, you willingly place yourself under his name. You willingly say, Jesus is Lord over this. And if he's Lord, not just saying it, but actually saying it. You submit. We acknowledge him as Lord of our lives. We place ourselves under his name. It's when we say, Lord, you can take up residence in my life. Nothing is off limits to your remodeling and nothing is off limits to your rule. Because worship is just as much a Monday thing as it is a Sunday thing. And our submission to Christ as Lord flows out of sincere hearts who have been shocked at how good and how great the Father's love is for us. Will you close with me in prayer? Father, we marvel at your kindness to us. And we pray, Father, that we would leave here with joy that is new, with a desire, and even a renewed desire, to let your word take up residence in our lives. I pray, Father, that you would bring continual clarity, not simply on what this text means, but on what it means for our lives tonight and tomorrow and Friday. Let us be a people, perhaps even more so now, who sing with joy and sincerity and thanksgiving. Let us minister to one another, and in everything that we do, submit ourselves to you as Lord. And with that, we say, Lord, please come quickly and set up your kingdom. We ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.